Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. Victoria popping in here at the top of the episode to let you know about Cheryl's Grace Through Uncertainty course. She mentions it a few times in today's episode, and it's a really beautiful 30-day course designed to help people heal worry at the root and become more comfortable with change. If, as you're listening to the conversation today, you're interested in learning more about the course, you can go to conscious-transitions.com, click on the Courses tab, and scroll down to Grace Through Uncertainty. The next live round starts on June 24th, so you have just enough time to register if you're interested in joining. So, Cheryl, I recently reinstated my rock climbing gym membership. Hmm. I was going to the rock climbing gym pretty consistently a couple of years ago, but the pandemic hit. I stopped going. It had been over three years, really, since I had gone. And this spring, I started going again, and I felt like a beginner all over again, very rusty with all this fear and worry. Mm. And I notice every time... I do a climb, that there are so many parallels between climbing a 30-foot wall at a gym and working with this habit of worrying that I have carried from such young age. Like as far back as I can remember, I was a little worrier. (laughs) And the thing about when you start going to the rock climbing gym is that We often, we walk in, we start to climb a wall, and a lot of our instincts about what to do and how to do it are not very helpful. Like we cling and grasp and kind of try to claw our way up with our arms, and we're probably holding our breath, and our muscles are really tense, and we're just Mm. like trying to get through it, just trying to get to the top and get back down. And I think that's how it can feel when we tend to worry a lot. We're just like trying to get through things, even good things. 
you know, and we're just like clawing and grasping and holding our breath and struggling. But what you learn at the rock climbing gym, the more you practice, the more experience you get when you have some helpful teachers, is that there are skills and techniques that you can use to not just get up to the top of the wall, but to find more ease, Mm. to find more effective and efficient and graceful ways to climb. And it starts to just be more like a dance and it's more enjoyable and you get stronger and more flexible and more confident and more excited and you start to look forward to the next challenge. And I think working with our worried minds is also similar. Our instincts and ingrained habits might feel more comfortable or familiar in the moment, but might not be all that helpful. But we can actually learn skills and techniques that help us to work with our worries and find a little bit more ease and presence and enjoyment and get stronger and more confident and flexible. So Cheryl, I'm just very excited to talk to you today about relating to worry and some of the skills and techniques that you use and that you help others use to find more of that presence and joy and ease as we move through all the climbs of our lives. Mm. Well, first of all, that was absolutely beautiful and brilliant, what you just shared, Victoria. Um, What a perfect analogy for talking about worry and life and the anxious brain and how easy it is to fall into those default ingrained habits of climbing up the walls, getting up the walls, that those habits are so deeply ingrained. They are intergenerational ancestral. I think anybody who has a worry habit is very familiar with the ways that their mother or father or grandparents and or have worried and can specifically describe as I can the look on their face, the tone in their voice when worry was present. And that gets passed down. And so, so I'm in this place where I am in deep practice of rerouting, rechanneling, regrooving my worry brain, my worry habit. And I would say I've been here for a long time, but in a more heightened way since ever started flying planes, which I've shared many times of what that has required of me. Um, watching my worry habit every time he goes into the sky and every time he drives, honestly, every time he's behind any kind of vehicle, um, that it's just ingrained. It's the first place I go, although less and less I've noticed it's not always the first place I go when he drives because driving happens so frequently. So my brain is getting used to it and is more, I've noticed recently, oh, I'm not and worry anymore every time he drives. So some of it is habituation, right? We just learn over time that the thing we're so worried about maybe is safer than we think, or the chances are less likely of something bad happening than the worry mind is telling us. Um, Flying definitely amps that up. And it's not necessarily rational because I don't know that flying is more dangerous than driving. Although Everest now tells me that it is. 
not commercial airlines. Those are very safe for anybody <laughs> out there who is afraid of flying. <laughs> Extremely safe, probably one of the safest things that we do. But what he flies, the small power planes, the Cessna, the gliders, those are in fact f- dangerous. There is risk involved. He would say it is riskier than driving. So watching my mind and working with that pretty closely over these years of, for me, one of the most helpful tools for working with worry when he flies is to connect to his joy. That when I tee into his joy, which is interesting because it's also the tool that I've shared with many people about the fear of flying in commercial airlines, mm-hmm. is envisioning Everest during turbulence like he's on a roller coaster, just in giddy joy, <laughs> practically laughing because he's having so much fun. Um, and so to imagine his, to know that he is in his highest light and joy when he's flying helps me shift the worry because I do believe that there are frequencies to emotions and some are higher and some are lower. And I don't mean that in a new age way, although it definitely sounds like that. It's just a like a feeling in the body of what, what does joy feel like? It feels much lighter and much more spacious than worry, which is this heavy, weighty, brow furrowed feeling, right? Everything contracts in worry, but with joy, everything expands. And so when I feel into his joy in flight, the worry simmers down and sometimes just goes away completely. And it's just, it's a moment. I work it through. I redirect, I rechannel, and I'm good. So that's a practice that I have utilized since he was 14. He's almost 19. So that's the past five years. Recently, and this is very recent, in the past few weeks, he has officially begun his path in the Navy. And the first step of that is basic training, which is almost three weeks of the hardest thing he's ever done, all of these young people in their lives, mentally, physically, emotionally. That's the point of it is to break them down and build them up, is to show them what they are capable of and to train them to be warriors, really. And when he's at basic training, there is no contact. So he has been away from us before because he has traveled with his school. He's been very far away, but we always get updates. You know, it's still high school. They send updates. They know the parents are worried. We get photos every four or five days. That helps a lot. At basic training, there's nothing, nothing, not one little hint of a clue of how he's doing while he's enduring the hardest thing of his life. But before Everest left, 
And this is where the conversation around intergenerational worry gets very interesting to me is that our children do not want the burden of our worry, just like we did not want the burden of our parents' worry, that there is some idea that worry is a form of love, that if you worry about somebody, it's because you love them. And if you don't worry, it means you're being reckless and careless and unloving and uncaring. Yes. Right? And- I think that message has been passed down very intensely from generation to generation. And so before he left, he said this to us several times, especially me, when I would look at him with just, you know, my brow furrowed, like, are you going to be okay? (laughs) And he said, if you're wondering how I'm doing, just assume I'm having a great time. Just assume I'm having the time of my life, even if it's miserable. This is where I'm meant to be. And it went in. And it was his way of saying, I don't want your worry. That's not helpful to me. If you really want to be loving, send out your confidence in me. Send out your trust in me. That was very much the message, especially to Dave more explicitly. I need your confidence in me. That's what's going to help me. Trust. Trust that I can do this and I will do this. And your worry does not help me. It is a burden and I do not want it. And so... I think he thought he was saying that for me, and I think it was also for me, but I think on a deeper level, it was also for him. And what it did was, it was a brilliant move on his part, because that's exactly what I did. Every time I wondered and worried, and oh my gosh, and what are they doing right now? And they're doing really intense stuff I won't even describe, really intense training and tests that they are put through. That every time my mind went there, I would hear his words and the heaviness and darkness of the worry feeling would instantly be transformed into light and joy. And what I saw was, and what I proactively imagined seeing was Everest filled with radiant light, the light of his joy, not necessarily that he's happy, that he was going to be happy every moment of being there but the joy of knowing he's exactly where he wants to be, how hard he worked to get there, that he is right in the center of his calling. I don't know that we can say that about many young people. It's a true gift that he gets to be in the center of his calling. And so I would see him radiant, just filled with light, of the rightness and the joy. And sending that for me, but also for him, sending it over the the invisible waves, the airwaves, the spiritual airwaves. And there was a very specific practice that I also did every time worry came. And by the way, he's still there as we are Mm. recording. Um, 
So I'm right smack dab in the middle of these practices of truly not knowing how this has been because some kids don't make it. They don't graduate. I mean, not that they die, but they don't graduate. Um, Some kids get sick when they're there. Some kids, like any injuries, anything could be happening. I have no idea. I'm not going there in my mind. Although when I do, because worry habit is certainly ingrained in me, this is how I'm working with it. And then there's another practice that comes from Judaism of it's called the priestly blessing and it's it's the raising of hands and the hands are in the shape of um a v and if there are any star trek fans out there it's <laughs> <laughs> it's it's what leonard nimoy brought to the masses they unknowingly were um enacting a jewish symbol because he was raised Orthodox Jew as an Orthodox Jew. And so the, you know, the two fingers, I don't know, are you a Star Trek watcher, Victoria? You know, I never have watched, but I'm familiar with, well, I have seen the newer movies and I've always been told like, oh, you should watch Star Trek because it's so philosophical and spiritual. And I am familiar with the, that it's like a greeting, right? It's the greeting, right? It's like the Vulcan greeting or something, Mm -hmm. right? And so in Judaism, the rabbi, um, and it's been passed down. So now parents on Shabbat will say the priestly blessing. And it's a blessing where you place your hands over the child's head. And it's a very short blessing of basically a protection of um, protection of well-being. And so I love blessings. I love being blessed. I love saying blessings. I say blessings all day long to our land, which to me is really just a form of gratitude. Um, but it happens to be gratitude in Hebrew. And that. so when I do that, I imagine over Everest's head and my hands and that there's just, again, this downpour of, of light and this protective field. And so my practice has been bumped up. And I, I love how worry can invite us to deepen and grow in these ways, just like all of our symptoms, just like anxiety, intrusive thoughts, which are all all very similar, all cousins in the same vein, that Everest's path has been elevated these past few weeks. It is a it's it's his initiation into military life, which Dave and I have now realized is also our initiation into military life, a life that we would have never imagined ourselves choosing, which we did not choose. But by association, we are now military, we are now a military family. And what that actually means, that our son is going to be number one away from us for stretches of time without contact. Number two, down the road, once he graduates from college and is commissioned as an officer and eventually deployed, will be likely in dangerous situations without contact. And in order for me to have any semblance of sanity, groundedness, steadiness, anchoring, this feels like a requirement that just as he is being initiated in his ways right now as we speak, so so I am being initiated 
what it is to be mother to this son. And we are all initiated in different ways in our different relationships and just how we walk through life. But in my particular configuration, mother to this son who has this particular calling and this particular path. He's not just going off to college. That's huge enough. But he is entering the Navy. And that the, the intensity of his path has now called into being by necessity a deepening of my practices specifically around worry because what you said about this ingrained belief that so many of us carry that's been passed down, that to worry is the same as to love. Yes, to care. To Mm -hmm. care, that worrying is the responsible thing to do and proof that you care. That goes so deep. And so it touches upon shame. Like, Mm. if I don't worry, does that mean I'm not a good mother Mm. or not a good daughter or not a good partner? Will someone think that I don't care if I don't (sighs) seem worried enough? Yes. (laughs) And so just you naming this and sharing this, I think, is so powerful. Mm. And it's so powerful to experience it on the other side, for Everest to experience it. For those of us who have a therapist who models that, you know, Mm. that's such a powerful experience. Or, you know, no matter how old we are, if a parent realizes, oh, I can actually reflect excitement and Mm. wonder for what you're going out in the world to do, it's just so powerful. Yes. And I think that I can relate to you in some ways because with this particular type of worry, because my boyfriend Martin is a wildland firefighter and he's been in Canada the past few weeks. He is, um, he's on what's called a hotshot crew this year and he's based in Oregon. So he left in April and he won't be back until sometime in October probably. And he also like, it's his first year on this type of crew, this hotshot crew. So he also had a pretty intense like boot camp type week in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And people ask me all the time if I worry about him. And of course, there have been times that I have. But I will say that I feel very lucky that I trust Martin so much. And I think you also trust Everest so much. Yes. And I think that can really make it either easier or much harder (laughs) to work with this type of worry. Like, I have such trust in Martin's abilities and judgment, and he's not a reckless person. Of course, anything can happen. Like, of course, accidents happen, but kind of similar to the way that Everest talks to you about 
well, you know how safe, like actually flying a commercial airplane is super safe. You know, Martin will tell me about what are the the safety measures that they take in wildland fire and what does he look for in joining mm. a crew when it comes to their attitude about safety and his own judgment and all these things. So I think some of it is a privilege, I guess, when we're in relationship with someone that we feel is so steady. But I uh, but I also think for me, like the vulnerability of tapping into my own joy and values and hope mm-hmm. is so uncomfortable <laughs> at times, mm-hmm. so difficult. Uncovering what is the what are the actual feelings underneath the worry? What is the shame underneath the worry? Mm-hmm. Because for me, there's often shame involved as well. Mm. And learning that there are so many choices to make. Um, and it's not necessarily just inevitable that I have to live in that place of worry. Mm-hmm. Yes. This piece about trust and how helpful that is in these particular situations where you do trust Martin's judgment and I do trust Everest's judgment when he flies, I trust his skill, I trust his ability, I trust his his judgment. And for me, and this is where we tip into more of the, the spiritual component, and I touched on some of this in my webinar yesterday that I um, was talking about spiritual practices and in advance of my Grace Through Uncertainty course coming up on Saturday, that to me, there's a deeply spiritual component around trust. And so it's there is this element of self-trust that comes up in worry. And there is this element of trusting the other, if there is an other at the other end of your worry. And then to me, there's an element of trusting something bigger, trusting, trusting this unknowable, mysterious something. I don't... I don't know that we have words. God, source of life, interconnectedness, just the mystery, trusting in the mystery, trusting in how life is going to unfold. And that worry, this other element of worry, so there's this element of worry where we associate it with care and love, right? If I really love someone, I'm going to worry about them. And if I'm not in worry, it means I don't really care. I'm being lackadaisical. And then there's this element of worry that is connected to control. Yes. That if I worry enough, right? And I've quoted this before, one of my clients or course members saying, it's my worry that keeps the plane in the sky, right? If I'm worried enough, the plane won't fall out of the sky. That the worry is actually doing something to control circumstances, It's totally irrational. Of course, some part of our brain knows that me worrying hard enough is not keeping the plane in the sky and that me worrying enough is not keeping Everest safe and healthy. But again, it's that that deeply ingrained habit that we absorbed, I think, from thousands of years of generations that maybe somehow conflated healthy anxiety with worry. Like there is a place for anxiety. 
when there's reason for it. Like I'm anxious about a test. Okay, that's going to make me study harder, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if Everest was anxious about being ready for basic training, he's going to get ready. He's going to train harder. He's going to run every day, whatever it is. So there is some element of anxiety that where there is wisdom to it and we should listen and act on it. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the the rumination, the headspace, the spinning, yeah. the heavy. And that does nothing good. I don't think there's anything positive that actually comes from worry. And yet, yes, it's 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 wired in, it's built in to you, to me, to most people listening. So it's not about judging it. It's about recognizing that the worry comes in and then we do have a choice about what happens next. But to me, this piece of control and what it feels like to let go of worry, it has that sense of free fall of, uh uh-oh, I've just let go of the thing that has been ingrained for thousands of years that is telling me that by worrying, I am preventing the bad thing from happening. And the remedy, one of the remedies, and one that has been very helpful for me and what I teach in the Grace Through Uncertainty course at the very core is growing those practices that help us connect to trust in something bigger, in life's unfolding, in the reality that most of life is in fact out of our control. And so this, a slight tangent here, but it's connected because this recently came to me when I was thinking about regret. I was regretting some decision I had made, and I don't even remember what it was anymore, which is good news, right? Because regret also is not super helpful. And this this insight came to me. I think I was in the shower, you know, when insights come. And the insight was, I wasn't the only one who made that decision. It wasn't just up to me. Hmm. And what I meant was, yes, on the human realm, you know, my husband participated in that decision and whoever, like there were other people that contributed to that decision. But on this deeper level, I had this sense of, and there are other elements. There are other energies. There are other um, beings, ancestors, who knows, that are also making decisions, participating in our decision-making process. And when I felt into that, it was like all the worry about that decision and the regret just dissipated. It was letting it land in the bigger hole of the mystery of it's not just up to me. There's something bigger. And so, you know, when I think about Everest, it is trust in his skills and ability and judgment but it's also trust in his life's calling and whether or not this piece is true or not, whether or not I'm in some kind of fantasy or some kind of spiritual bypassing, that that may be so. 
but it helps me. And so I'm okay with it <laughs> to, to think. Um, and of course, as I'm about to say this, my worry mind is like, well, as soon as you say that you're, you're jinxing. Like, yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you worry mind. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, this come up. This came up on some other episode we were talking about. I know. Yeah. Um, but it's okay. It's worth. It's worth going here again. Um, maybe we were talking about the fear of death or something along those lines. I don't believe. I believe Everest has a bigger calling than. I'll just say it this way: than the images my worry mind sends to me. You know. And when I trust into that bigger calling, it's the same place as, as just seeing him in radiant light. Um, the worry quiets down or goes away. Right? And so in this sense, I think we can say that the opposite of worry is trust. And I said this on the webinar yesterday. The opposite of worry is trust. We can't be in worry and trust at the exact same time, right? And to me, there are tangible practices that help me grow that place of trust. And I don't mean, I don't mean the trust that everything's going to be perfect and no, and nothing bad is going to happen. I don't mean that. I just mean the trust in our capacity to access the place inside where we are okay. And I posted on Instagram about this, this the place where we are, where we are okay. Mm-hmm. The place that lives underneath. Like I'm imagining the place of okay, like an understory that lives, that's always there. It's like this calm place. And, and after I posted that, I thought, oh, that's what polyvagal theory is really so much about. It's so worry is in the sympathetic. It's like the fight or flight. It's like, oh my gosh, it's a catastrophe. Something horrible is going to happen. And then the parasympathetic, I think, is more of that spacious, calm. It's okay, right? And that we all have access to that place inside of us. But it is a practice. really fascinating is that we all have different, I think, wiring and temperaments and history around this relationship to worry. And historically, I have been so consumed by this sense of there's so much that I can't control, catastrophe can happen at any time, that I lost touch with the ability to focus on the things that I could control mm. and to tend to those things. Like I didn't even have the energy to take action where I could. Mm-hmm. And I think I just want to name that because I think it's very easy to slip into that place for 
a lot of people with similar wiring (laughs) where we just almost like completely shut down. Mm -hmm. And it's taken me a while to realize that I can look at a situation that I'm worried about and ask myself, well, let me start with what can I control here, you know? Mm. Um, Because that's important. (laughs) Yes. And without that, we flail. And a, a good example, I think, is I went to visit with Martin. Well, we met up in Washington State <laughs> recently, and it was on very short notice because he doesn't really know when he'll have a few days off. You know, mm-hmm. he goes on an assignment for an indeterminate amount of time, and then it's like, oh, I'm going to have a few days off in a week. Mm. And it is very uh, atypical for me to travel spontaneously across the country. (laughs) Like usually I need months of preparation, but in some ways it was like, maybe this is better, you know, Mm -hmm. not a lot of time to worry. To worry. Yes. And I decided to live into my values and to think about, you know, he had just gone through this tough boot camp. He had just, he had gotten news on like day two or day three of his uh, first week that a family member had passed. And Mm. I knew how much it would mean to him for me to go and, and visit. Yeah, And so I decided to trust that, that I could live into my values, that this was totally doable and that I could focus on the parts that I could control for this trip mm. and, and take those actions and then, you know, and say, okay, for that small percentage of whatever I'm worried about going wrong, you know, I can't control that part. But I think that you know, I mentioned this in a bonus episode. Actually, I think it was the bonus episode for the Patreon that I did with Martin last summer. Uh-huh. But I mentioned uh, watching this very long lecture about OCD um, and how I can't remember the, the lecturers' names. They're two authors who have written a lot about OCD. But they talked about how someone with someone with OCD often looks at the risk of something happening and the stakes of something happening and the, and the stakes of that thing being the same. So if the stakes are like, I lose the love of my life, then the risk appears to be, I don't know, 90% when really it might be like 0.002%, you know? And I, ever since I got that vocabulary for it, that's Mm. been really helpful for me. Yeah. Because I believe like, yes, this spiritual component of at a certain point saying like, I cannot control everything Mm -hmm. and no matter what I'm loved, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is so important. And I think also the micro level of like understanding your own brain and what puts you into freeze and what actually helps you walk towards what you value and walk towards life. And some of that is so concrete <laughs> and so yes. um and and so focused on actually what what you do have control over or mm. the actions that you can take. I just yes. think it's both and I love that. I'm curious if we could just spend a couple minutes because I think it might help just make this a little a little bit more relatable and tangible talking about what the things are that we both tend to worry about. If there are Mm. typical things or if it's just anything. 
Yeah, well, I made a list because you had you had kind of put this yes. question out there before. And I was at first I was just like, everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really made me think. Like the first things that will come to my mind are health mm-hmm. things, also money, totally yes. a huge thing for me all the time mm-hmm. that I worry about. Mm-hmm. Family, mm-hmm. existential questions. Why am I here? What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. What should I do next? Um <laughs> travel, <laughs> if I have to mm-hmm. travel. Um, but then I realized actually a lot of my anxiety has to do with social and relational mm. situations. Mm. You know, is that person mad at me? Did I say the wrong thing? You know, if I do this, will that will they hate me? Like mm-hmm. the social and relational, you know, did I hurt that person? Did I show up enough for that person? Um the social and relational stuff. And then I mm. think just more broadly, it's change. It's new experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that that really bring it up for me. Mm. So interesting. I don't think I worry about that social <laughs> I <piece> know <laughs> at all. But, <laughs> but I would say for the vast majority of people who – are the highly, highly sensitives prone to OCD, I would say that's that's number one. Um, so for me, it's it's my kids. That's number one. Are they okay? Are they happy? Um, and just in like the granular, are they getting enough exercise? Are they eating enough protein? Um, are they thriving? So I would say that that's just a, a stream that probably always runs through me. Um, and less and less as they get older, but I was certainly more focused on the physicality of it when they were younger and every time they would get sick and the, the worry about that. But I think in just more of a macro way or are, are they okay in this life? And then household worries, like, is everything running as it should? Um, these are the these are the householding years. So for those of us with kids and mortgage and yard and marriage, it's it's there's a lot to um, keep tabs on, and that that also feels that one feels connected to like a deep intergenerational pattern. Um, my work, I don't tend to worry a whole lot about my work because. There's a certain hum at this. I don't know why. I think there's just always been some level of ease around it. But but definitely, am I holding all the uh, all the pieces? Are there things that are slipping through the cracks? It's it's certainly a big responsibility to be the sole entrepreneur, the sole owner of my business. You know, I don't work with anybody, and so it's it's all on me. And I've often wished for other eyes. To look at that's why I love doing this with you so much, Victoria. Mm-hmm. I love that we're holding this together, um, and that we we bring different things to it, and we we carry it and hold it in different ways. And you carry so so much of the nuts and bolts, which I'm endlessly grateful for. Um, and then health, as I've mentioned, and 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 health was what birthed the whole Grace Through Uncertainty course was a health scare that I had in 2016 and how I was able to call on my spiritual practices 
um, my nature practices, my prayer practices, my poetry practices to see me through that with some grace. And I don't mean that I didn't fall into worry when I was in the middle of that health scare because I absolutely did. But I don't think that's the goal. Like we're saying, I don't think it's to never feel worry, right? We're going, we're going to worry, especially when there's a cancer scare on the table, like a real one. Um, I don't want to paint a picture that if we are spiritual enough or wise enough or have enough information or adult enough that we will never experience worry or stress or anxiety because, right, that's not the case. Um, so, you know, I, again, when I, I shared a few weeks ago on my blog about Everest's plan A falling through, or we thought it had fallen through with his college plans, it seemed like a, a fail-proof, ironclad plan A. And all of a sudden it was, it seemed to be gone. And despite all of my practices, I, I was thrown into tremendous worry. And it didn't matter how much I prayed and meditated and sat by the creek and all my things, I was just in a state of worry. Right? And I knew intellectually that the catastro- that plan B was not catastrophic. I, I knew he was he would be okay, but it just was hitting me in a really painful place. And it was hard. So we're going to have times or situations that are stressful and we just have to do the best we can with them. And then, you know, hopefully they pass. And most times they do pass. One of the things that my therapist and I identified because, you know, I was noticing my patterns that in recent situations where I was really spiraling with rumination and worry, a common factor was me getting online to do some research and Falling down a rabbit hole of nightmares and emerging drenched, drenched in fear and anxiety. It's my cardinal rule. No yes. Googling. Yes. No <laughs> Googling. You have said it so many times. And I think actually you even said it to me when I was like worried about the trip to Puerto Rico. And you were like, maybe stop Googling. And I told my therapist that. And she's like, remember what Cheryl said? Um, and it sounds so simple, right? But it's like, what I identified with her was, I I think that it helps to do a certain amount of research and planning. Like that's mm-hmm. something I'm getting better at. And then when you've gotten to the point where it is, you've gotten all you need, you've gotten all the information you can yes. get, all the information that you need, yes. it's time to stop. Time to stop. And, yes. and also, um, I think reassurance seeking, you know, it's also something that many people talk about, but- I was thinking about how before my trips uh, to Hawaii last year and to Puerto Rico in the spring, sounds like I'm jet setting all the time. I'm It's very new for me. <laughs> um, you know, I was texting you and I was texting my close friend, Melissa, and that's great. You know, we can reach out for support. But before going to Washington, I actually made a very conscious choice not to text you and not mm-hmm. to text Melissa. Mm-hmm. Um because even that, it's like, yeah, you can you can talk to a loved one up to a point. Yes. And then it can start again to spiral and yes. drag you down a little bit. Because if you're worried, people can say 
things that they think are totally innocuous that make you or that they think will help that make you worried or, you know, you'll just hear yourself going over these worries. And Mm -hmm. so I think, again, hearing someone say, wow, that's great. I'm so glad you're doing that. And then being like, thank you. I love you. And Mm. (laughs) you end, you sit with their excitement for you and then you kind of end it. So I think really identifying like, okay, when the situation comes up, Yes. What happens? Like, the, where am I um, watering it? Like, to use the, mm-hmm. the image that you will use a lot of, you know, what you water will grow. Like, what is my participation in, in the dynamic? And where are the points that I can interrupt and make a different choice? And it's yes. really hard. <laughs> but yes. where are those points? Can I just start by at least identifying them? Yes. It's so important. There's this other element of worry that I think is connected in terms of what we have control over and also just talking it through and making the connections about when worry is louder, that worry like anxiety is a messenger. And so like what I've noticed is that there's there can be the same exact situation on two different days and one day I'm worried about it and the next day I'm not. And the situation itself hasn't changed, right? Let's say something like money or something like, um, well, let's just use money, right? It hasn't changed from one day to the next. And yet our relationship to it changed. We can be worried one day and not the next. And what is that? And I think when we Remember that worry is this habit and it's a default. We can default to that place because it's familiar and it's so deeply ingrained. But then we can ask, um, where am I not fed? Where am I not filled up? Am I tired, hormonal, hungry? Have I not had enough time to fill my well? That's often the case when I notice I'm in a default worry track, someplace that's very, very familiar. But isn't necessarily heightened for any particular reason, but it's just familiar. And then I say, okay, I really, like my kids are home, it's summer, I haven't had the time to fill my well. That's likely when worry is going to pipe up and be louder. And it's helpful to know that because it helps us not to latch on, right? Then the remedy might be, okay, I, I really need to extract myself as best I can and go sit at the creek for five minutes, right? That would be helpful. Or I, I need to take a walk. I just need to get out of the house and out of this orbit and be in my own skin and my own breath, my own body. And once I do that, then I can check back in and engage. Like, oh, where is that worry? Oh, yeah, it's it's quieter. It's really not about that thing. It's just the familiar hook that the brain falls into when the waters are low in the well for whatever reason. Yeah. It's why I've been really committing to this practice of going to the rock climbing gym because I find that it's really helpful to me to have a physical practice that is rigorous enough that it like shakes me out of Mm -hmm. the rumination. So like in the winter when I talked about doing a lot of hiking and I think what's nice in the 
hot, humid, muggy summer is going into the air-conditioned rock climbing gym sometimes, you know, yes. and doing something that's just so um, – there's no space to be thinking about anything else, yes. you know, and it's so embodied. And that is huge, moving into the body. It's just huge, you know. Well, it's huge because worry is all headspace. Yeah. Right. It's all just getting stuck in that heavy spin cycle in the brain. And so the best, fastest remedy is to get into your body in any way. I love that you've made that a practice, Victoria. I love that you were hiking in the winter, rock climbing in the summer. It's so good. I just, I love that you've, I love that that's coming in for you as a real discipline and a practice and that you're noticing the effects, what it is to be in our body in those kinds of more rigorous ways. Um, I think it's the remedy for so much. I mean, you know, because I say it in probably every episode is drop down into the body, whatever that, yes, into our emotional body, but our physical body, like we're just simply not to be meant to be sitting as much as yeah. we sit in our modern lives. And it creates a lot of problems. And it reminds us like I'm stronger than I think, yes. you know, and I can handle things. Like if they, one of my big worries with going to, to Washington was I just had this worry of what if I go and I get COVID while I'm in Washington and Martin has to go back to work and I'm just alone, quarantined. I have to use up all my sick days because I won't have my work laptop with, you know, ca mm -hmm. totally catastrophizing about this specific thing. Yes. And part of my, you know, I took the, again, I took the precautions I could take. And mm -hmm. then I said, and I will handle it. Yes. And I will handle it. And yes. the other thing that was so beautiful was, I, I would love to underscore what you said about kind of taking that different perspective, you know, imagining Everest enjoying the turbulence, you know, mm -hmm. and to me, like I would say, oh, I haven't flown alone across the country in years. And then I'd catch myself and with that humor say, well, alone with, you know, a hundred other passengers and two pilots and crew <laughs> attendants who are there to help with anything, you know? Yes. And, You're not Charles Lindbergh. Yeah. It's that reframe <laughs> of like, I'm saying I'm alone and yes. sure, I'm not traveling with a friend, but I'm also not alone. And the flight attendant who was like, coming to my section the most looked so much like my therapist. <laughs> like she looked oh, almost I exactly like her. <laughs> and I was just like, I will take that, you know, like yes. I will, I will Look take for that. the helpers. <laughs> Look yes. for the helpers. Yeah. Yes. One of our, one of our best mottos from Mr. Yeah. Rogers. Look yeah. for the helpers. You're not alone, but that is the worry mind. I am all alone. Mm-hmm. Help will not come. Mm -hmm. I won't be able to handle. And so it, connecting to that different voice, I am not alone. Help will come and I will handle it. Yeah. Whatever it is, I will handle it. And the worry about it is so much worse than whatever the thing is, mm -hmm. you know. Usually, not always, but yeah, usually. I feel that that flutter of vulnerability I know. as you say it's it, like, right? Not always. <laughs> not always. So I was thinking about just some just some things that help worry, just wanting to leave our listeners with a few simple lines. 
Worry makes us forget the goodness of life, this moment. So one of the things that helps is connecting to gratitude. Worry anticipates the worst case catastrophic scenario. When we can flip that and imagine what actually might be happening or what could happen, like connecting to Everest joy and purpose, worry quiets down. Worry is heavy. Humor is light. Worry is a headspace. So like we're saying, one of the best remedies is to get into your body. Worry is primal and from the amygdala. When we can access a different part of our brain, it cuts through worry. And my favorite cut through question, especially for health anxiety, is what else could it be? Worry is the opposite of trust. So turning to practices that connect you to trust helps us to grow that pool of trust where worry arrives less often, but when it does arrive, there's there's a pool that we can catch it in. And that is primarily what I teach in the Grace Through Uncertainty course is um, finding and deepening our personal meaningful practices that help us connect to trust and grow, grow that pool of trust. There's so much more we could say on this and maybe we can return to it another time, but I think this was, I'm just so glad we, we were able to talk about this. Um, Me too. And I'm so thankful to you for bringing your compassionate wisdom to it as mm. always. Mm. And I'm so thankful to you, Victoria, for bringing your very tangible tools and sort of that prefrontal cortex <laughs> um, element to this conversation about worry, how powerful it is when we can access that different part of our brain um, and that very, very, very tangible earthbound way. Mm. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Victoria. <laughs>